Well, good morning. I'm Danny Martin, one of the leaders here at City on a Hill Church. It's, of course, wonderful to see all of you here with us in person and great to be seen or heard later by all of you with us online. If you're able to join us, those of you online here at the Steeple Center soon in downtown Rosemont, we'd love to see you. We'll save you a seat. Come and join us. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, which we've been going through for a while now, the Apostle Paul writes to Greek Christians that he personally knew and loved. Paul heard that the Corinthian church was struggling through a number of challenging, specific problems. So he wrote this letter that we call 1 Corinthians to them to help address some of those specific problems and to provide clarity and guidance. The first specific problem Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians concerns disunity because of factions. At this time in history, around the year 60 AD, there were Christian leaders called apostles who traveled throughout the Roman world to teach and preach. These apostles were specifically appointed by Jesus to preach the good news of Jesus' resurrection and to start Christian churches across the world. Because of this, the apostles carried a unique authority to set precedent through their teachings and actions. That's why their recorded words are called the Bible, and my recorded words are Danny's sermon, not as good as last week's, and eh, we'll go with it. The Corinthians had elders to help lead their regional churches, but also big names like the Apostle Paul, Apollos, and the Apostle Peter, who probably hadn't been to Corinth, but was well known because of his close relationship with Jesus. And here's the thing about the apostles. None of the apostles demanded loyalty to anyone but Jesus himself. Yet, the Corinthians were measuring one another based on who their preferred leader was. They did this to the extent that it wasn't just about liking one person's style over another's, it actually created disunity in the church. But none of these Christian leaders were asking anyone to start factions. All of these leaders viewed themselves as servants of Jesus, and all of them, by the grace of God, had something to offer for the Corinthians' growth. They were merely servants of King Jesus and stewards of his great gifts. This leads us into 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Please turn there with me in your Bible or swipe there on your Bible app. While you're getting to 1 Corinthians 4, I'll remind you that God wants to know, to know you, and he wants you to know him. And one of the ways he invites all of us to do this is through the regular reading of his word, the Bible. If you will commit to prayerfully and hopefully meditating on God's word, he will use it to change your life. I encourage you to make it a regular part of your life if it isn't. As they say, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. So if you didn't plant that tree 20 years ago, that's okay. Why not start today? 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. I'm reading from the English Standard Version translation. Follow along in whatever translation you have. 
This is how one should regard us Christian leaders, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul refers to what he said in 1 Corinthians 3. There was no need for the Corinthians to measure one another based on which Christian leader they preferred, because all Christian leaders are Jesus' servants. Paul himself wants to be regarded this way. He doesn't demand special treatment. More importantly, Paul doesn't want the Corinthians thinking that they need to pick and choose sides and then judge their brothers and sisters on this basis. It's not even how they should be going about assessing one another. The Corinthians' error is that they're carrying their pre-Christian culture into the church. And like much of the Greco-Roman culture, they've been trained to think that an important part of this Christianity thing is status. But Paul's basically saying, you think being a leader in Christianity is about status and power? Gold rings, filet mignon, and private jets? Newsflash, Christian leaders are servants, first and foremost. Oftentimes, the word servant in the New Testament comes from a Greek word that essentially meant slave. Paul uses this word for slave to refer to himself and his ministry. He calls himself a slave of Christ. He has no problem whatsoever referring to himself or to the other leaders this way. He uses this word a lot. But that's not the word translated servant here in 1 Corinthians 4.1. Here it's a different word. And interestingly, this is the only place that this word is used in any of the New Testament letters. This word, translated servant, has two unique dimensions worth noting. First, in its very oldest sense, it's the word that refers to the guys that rode those giant ships, like in Ben-Hur. Remember, there's the big shirtless guy, he's all greased up for some reason, he's got the drum, bum, 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 row, 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 that guy. So the servants are the ones who are the ones doing the row to the bum, bum guy. That's this word. So that's the first sense of it, the, the literal sense, under rowers, if you want to be literal. But later on, this same word came to be used of government officers. So when Jesus was arrested, for example, it says the priest sent soldiers and officers to do this. That's the same word, officer, that Paul is using for servant here. It's this second definition that I want to drill down on for a moment. Officers are officially sanctioned to serve in a unique capacity that carries with it unique rights and privileges, but also a higher standard of servant leadership. Many police departments, for example, have as their motto some version of to protect and serve. We invest tremendous trust into our law officers, and in exchange for this tremendous trust, we grant them unique rights privileges, and responsibilities. If a group of police officers came into this service right now to arrest someone here, while we might think, boy, could they have picked a better time for this, we also wouldn't do anything to stop them because our basic assumption would be that they are enacting the trust that our society has invested in them. 
Surely they've got a good reason to be doing this. It's their trusted responsibility. And if it came out later that they wrongfully arrested someone out of our service without due process, using faulty evidence, we would be rightfully upset at how they interrupted our service, wrongfully arrested somebody, scared our kids half to death, and violated our trust. We would demand accountability from them. It's the same thing with Paul himself and with Christian leaders today. You invest tremendous trust and grant us unique rights and privileges. As we read from Paul's letter to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In exchange for this trust and privilege, you demand responsibility and accountability. You expect us not to abuse your trust and our privileges. The price that we pay for this privilege in the short term is that it's hard to get this job and very easy to lose it. In the long term, it's that we will be judged more seriously than you will, as James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I've had the great misfortune of personally knowing three pastors who violated the trust that they had been given. This led to various permutations of relationship fallout, legal bills, embarrassing news stories, broken families, both of victims and perpetrators, people leaving to go to new churches, people leaving the church altogether. A leader can look good, sound smooth, play all the parts of a worldly success, just like the Corinthians thought they should. But Paul says, Christian leaders are supposed to be servants and stewards entrusted with sacred responsibility. We are not to be judged as smart, not as good looking, not witty, not funny, not fancy, but faithful. Faithful to the responsibility of teaching and living God's truth. So Paul says, Christian leaders are servants entrusted with the mysteries of God. Some translations might say, shh, secrets. If you're a good student, and you were here last week paying attention and taking notes, your ears should be perking up because I said there are no secret Christian beliefs last week. Am I being the exact kind of bad leader that we just talked about? If you want to do a Bible study, do one on the word mystery. And look at how the word mystery is used in the New Testament and what it means. But if you don't want homework, here's the quick answer for you. The mystery Paul is talking about is the idea that the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, wasn't meant only for the Jewish people. He was meant for all people. 
So Paul writes in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 2, this, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, non-Jews, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. It was a wild idea to the Jews of the first century that God's chosen one they'd been waiting on was not a military deliverer meant to reestablish Israel as an independent kingdom, but a spiritual deliverer of all humanity meant to establish a spiritual kingdom open to anyone who will bow to its king. It's a sacred revelation, a mystery, if you will, entrusted to officers and stewards. Verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. If the world judges Paul using its own version of wisdom rather than God's, whatever, He's already said in the previous two chapters that's not how he's judging the effectiveness of a Christian leader or the validity of a Christian's life. Paul is looking to operate under God's wisdom. He's committed to the fundamental idea that God defines good and evil, not human beings. He's taking a different test altogether. And the tester was not the Corinthians' culture, it's not our culture, not the world, not any of us. It's the Lord himself. Using this standard, Paul's not aware that he's done anything as an apostle that demands judgment from God. He's been faithful to his role as an officer and steward. Certainly he was aware of his past life and the kind of person he used to be before Jesus, Near the end of this very letter, he writes this in 15.8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. He's listing all the people that Jesus appeared to after he resurrected. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And then one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, a verse that defines my life, 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He knows what God saved him from. He remembers who he was until Jesus gave him a higher calling. All of this in mind, though, Paul's not assuming that he's acquitted because he knows he's a human being. He can make mistakes. He can sin even after he's been rescued from capital S sin. We can sin as Christians, but because we're covered by what Jesus did for us, 
the nature of the consequence changes. We're not condemned by God because of our sin, but we will be judged and we may well reap serious results in this life for our sins. There are lots of reasons that God allows consequences in this life for the ways that we violate his holiness with our sin, even though we're ultimately forgiven. First is that God allows consequences for our sins in this life to protect the church. Somewhere it's written that yeast works its way through a whole batch of dough when you're making bread. And if you've ever made bread, you know that the amount of yeast you put into the bread is way less than the amount of water and flour that makes up the dough itself. You don't need half yeast, half dough. Just a little bit of yeast will work its way through all of the dough. And when sin in a local church goes unaddressed, like just a little bit of yeast, it will work its way through the whole church. I've mentioned it several times here, but it's an accessible recent example. The rise and fall of Mars Hill Church podcast. One of the bad things that the pastor did there was yell and scream at people regularly and talk about how Jesus is the kind of guy who punches people in the mouth for looking at him the wrong way. What do you think happened to the men closest to this pastor? Survey says, you guessed it. Yeah, they start yelling and screaming at people. They start throwing down with guys in public. The yeast of anger worked its way through the culture of the church. Sometimes God, in his wisdom and mercy, will be very, very patient with this sort of thing. Other times, God, in his wisdom and mercy, will let people fall hard to protect the church. There are even a few times in the New Testament, not just that mean Old Testament God, where God straight up kills people. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say, God is allowing people in the church to get sick and die because, how, because of how they are unapologetically creating disunity around the Lord's Supper, which is supposed to bring all of us together. It's a tangible symbol of that. Which leads into the second reason God will allow consequences for our sins in this life, even though we are ultimately forgiven in Jesus. God allows consequences for our sins in this life to restore us through corrective punishment. Paul will say this in the very next chapter, chapter 5, about a man in the Corinthian church who had a sexual relationship with his stepmother. He'd apparently been told to stop, at least by the people in Corinth who still had their heads on straight, but a whole lot of people were like, ooh, look how enlightened and tolerant we are by allowing this to go on. We've really captured the spirit of Jesus without getting caught up in the details. Eh, wrong. Do not pasco. Do not collect $200. Paul says, throw this Oedipus complex situation out of the church to protect the church from corruption and hand this man over to Satan so his flesh will be destroyed but his spirit saved. Remove God's and the church's protection from him so he can learn through suffering where his path will truly lead him if he doesn't stop. The good news for me 
is that Bruce gets to preach on that in a few weeks, so Godspeed, Bruce. <laughs> so consequences for our sin in this life are protective, they're corrective, and third, God allows consequences for our sins in this life because God is merciful and also just. We shouldn't assume that if we're Christians, we can go around doing crime and nothing bad will ever happen because Jesus got it covered. Anyone who even has this attitude at all is showing that they don't really love and follow Jesus. Being a good person or doing good works isn't what saves us. It doesn't make us Christians. Only trusting Jesus can do that. However, if a person truly trusts Jesus, then they will do good works and become better people because God the Holy Spirit is inside of them, empowering them and changing them. So if somebody's running around saying, I'm saved and it was free. Next stop, Sin City, baby. They're demonstrating one of two things. Either that they're living completely inconsistent with the new life they have in Jesus and they need correction, or they're not saved. A truly saved person does not view Jesus' sacrifice as an all-expense-paid ticket to absolutely anything that they want. I mentioned the three pastors I've known who violated the trust invested in them. I knew these men on a first-name basis. One lost his job and went to prison. He admits his sin. He's extremely repentant. I would actually say, actually say he's probably too hard on himself. Another lost his job but did not go to prison. He almost did. He admits his sin. He's working to serve God in some capacity, no longer as a pastor. The third one didn't do anything prison-worthy, but he should have at least been reprimanded for his unpastoral behavior. He never was. And because he wasn't, it caused several other people to lose their jobs and also led to an exodus of people from the church. To my knowledge, this pastor has never apologized or publicly admitted his sin. Here's my point. We will never really know in this life what God has protected us from when he shields us from some consequences but allows others. In some cases, people seem to get exactly what they deserve. In others, they get off scot-free. And ultimately, it's the Lord who's going to reveal everything. Jesus knows why people are really serving. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows if people are measuring one another by the world's standards. Paul was, and we should, be taking a different test altogether, not one based on the world's standards. So he writes in verse 5 of chapter 4, Therefore don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation, not condemnation, from God. And then verse 6. I've applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. 
this is one of those places where we could really go down a rabbit trail. Ooh, don't go beyond what's written. What does that mean? Ooh. But remember the context. He's talking about leader-based factions. He's talking about worldly cultural standards that the Corinthians are using to judge one another and to judge the validity of their leaders. So what he means by don't go beyond what's written is what we've been saying all along. As you're evaluating your servant leaders, your officers, judge us according to what is written in God's word and don't apply some exterior cultural standard. Because one group will complain that when, when they were young, a pastor always wore a suit. And another will complain because how are we ever supposed to reach regular people if our pastor looks inaccessible by wearing a suit? It's not even an argument anybody should be having. Don't be the Buzz Lightyear of church. Don't go to infinity and beyond what is written. Thank you for the sympathy laughter. <laughs> this will go a long way in preventing us from being puffed up with arrogance and pride against each other for non-biblical reasons. And it will go a long way toward preventing favoritism and factions. Worship team, you guys can make your way up. Verse 7 is our last verse for today. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? The Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in his letter that every good gift comes from God above. When John the Baptist heard of everything Jesus was doing, he said that a person can't receive even one thing if it doesn't come from heaven. And one chapter ago, in this very letter, Paul said, he planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. There is no reason to boast, because we have received what we have as gifts. And the fruit that's grown from our work is because God gives the growth. So we should seek to be led by leaders who are God's officers and stewards, and who live accordingly with that sacred responsibility, we assess one another by God's standards, not the world's, because though life is complex and justice and consequences can't always be worked out tit for tat like we might expect, it is God who will ultimately judge. In assessing our leaders and one another, we do so according to God's standards, not the world's, and we do so for the sake of protection, correction, and restoration of the church and its people, and the world. We remain humble and grateful because it's God who gives the growth. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you. As we worship you through our lives, we pray that more and more your Holy Spirit will empower us to live your way as we continually learn to assess ourselves our leaders in our church by your standards, not the world's, not our own. And as we do this, Father, we ask you to give the growth that your kingdom may expand here in Rosemont and in all the places that we go throughout our week. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.